Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. This is a very exciting day as we have Rick Stein on the podcast. Rick needs no introduction from me, of course, and I know he has been a heavily requested guest, so I hope you're as excited as me about this one. I'm very happy to report that he is charming and kind and everything you think he will be, and it was a real honor to get to spend time with him. His new book is out now, Simple Suppers, and he has kindly said that he will send one to one of you, which is a very lovely thing, and I will explain more in the newsletter. You might have noticed that there isn't a sponsor for this episode, but there is in a way, because I have teamed up with the amazing Fortnum & Mason to offer one lucky winner the chance to win one of their Magic of Christmas hampers. These hampers are worth £300, which will definitely make for a very happy Christmas. Fortnum & Mason is a brand I've loved for a very long time. All their products are just gorgeous and delicious. The packaging is luxurious and their hampers really are the best. So this is very exciting. To be in with a chance to win, you must be subscribed to the Dinner Tonight newsletter as I will be sending out more information about the hamper and also how to enter. I should say that this is available to UK customers only because of the way the delivery works. So go to desertislanddishes.co, sign up to the newsletter dinner tonight and look out for my email with more information on how to win the hamper of dreams. Now, without further ado, here are Rick Stein's Desert Island Dishes. My guest today is Rick Stein. Rick is a chef, restaurateur, cookery book author, and television presenter. He has written over 25 cookery books, a memoir, and made over 30 television programs. His latest cookbook, Simple Suppers, is out now. It has been nearly 50 years since he first opened the fish restaurant in Padstow, an area of Cornwall he fell in love with at a young age and has made his home. Despite his successes, Rick describes himself as an accidental restaurateur who never planned on a career in food, and yet how lucky we are that his dreams of running a nightclub were quashed by the local authorities and led instead to the Stein restaurant empire we know today. He is the man who could pretty much entirely be credited with bringing an appreciation of fish to the UK masses, something he says he didn't set out to do intentionally, it just made sense at the time. And despite his obvious success, Rick has said, I've definitely got a sense of not being very good at stuff. It's sort of absurd because, you know, I have done quite well for myself, but I still really doubt myself. It's just the way I am. Welcome, Rick. Well, that's a very, very nice little sum up of my life, I have to say. <laughs> really enjoyed it. I'm glad you like it. I always get so nervous doing that bit. Yeah. But it truly is an honour to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And Great. you Thank have you. been one of our most highly requested guests. I wanted to start by asking you about that quote when you're saying that you don't think you're very good at stuff. Because Rick, what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, I've, I think it's just a sort of a problem I have really, and I don't. I do accept that because I've done sort of quite well. It's really silly, uh, but I just think some of these sort of things that probably happened to you in childhood. I don't know why. I had a very successful older brother, 
um, who's done terribly well academically, John. And I think I've always felt like a sort of second division behind him. And I, I see that in probably my own children, but so many young children, grandchildren now that you see a sort of pecking order mm. evolving and you wish it wasn't. But it is, mm. you know, and you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. Do you think that's true? So whatever the pecking order is as a teenager, possibly, it kind of stays like that forever. I, I think it's hard to get out of it. Mm. Yeah, I really do. But your older brother must look at you and think, Well, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> do you think he knows that you well, feel that way? Um, he always refers to himself as brother of the more famous Rick. <laughs> it's so funny. But he is very famous in his own right, which is in sort of neuroscience. But there you go. Yeah. You know. Has your definition of success changed over time? Well, I guess in the early days, it wasn't so much a success. It was actually earning enough money to um, bring myself and my wife and my the young children up to pay for all the bills. Mm. So that was success. It's, it's only when I started doing TV and writing books that my horizons broadened somewhat. I've never really sort of um, looked at success for its own sake. It's really just because I quite like fish. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's not a, you know. It all comes it, back it still is to fish. That I quite like fish, yeah. <laughs> I know you are an avid traveller, and at the end of this podcast, we are going to send you to a desert island. Fair enough. How does the thought of that make you feel? I think I'd be okay. I, I guess uh, reading one of my favourite authors, Joseph Conrad, and his book Nostromo, the hero in Nostromo, ends up on a desert island, mm. and he goes mad, right? Okay. okay. And I suspect that that's what would happen to most people. But I am resourceful. So, I mean, if, if you look at, like, desert island dishes, desert island discs... I would be able to cope with living on a desert island, no problem, because I, I like a bit of DIY, so I'd probably construct some sort of cabin to live in. <laughs> but I'd probably get the blues, you know, yeah. to be honest. How long do you think you'd last? Probably about four months. Oh, you know? okay. I mean, because I'd be alive, but I'd just be yeah. trying to find ways to stop myself going barking mad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's dive straight into the first desert island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, I would guess, I'm afraid it's a bit boring, but it would be my mum's fish cakes mm. in Cornwall in my early teens, I would think, because um, that's what I can remember. I mean, like 11, 12. She just made with potato, mackerel and pollock. Ooh. And um, the great thing about them was that it was the only dish that she sanctioned tomato ketchup with. Oh. Right? <laughs> if you had... Tomato ketchup with your breakfast. It was described as disgusting, right? <laughs> and I still can't do tomato ketchup with breakfast, although I can have the odd dollop of brown sauce. Mm. So it was mackerel fish cakes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't really about the fish cakes. It was about the tomato ketchup. <laughs> well, that's a sort of interesting thing. It's a bit like things in breadcrumbs, like Wiener Schnitzel, <laughs> you know. It's really about the breadcrumbs. <laughs> yes, it's so true. <laughs> In your memoir, you talk about your childhood and growing up on a farm in the Cotswolds and how your father would point out at Sunday lunch that everything from the meat to the vegetables had all come from your land. Do you think that was, looking back, a really important backdrop to the career that you've had? I do. Uh, and the older I get, the, the more I think it that, that really it's what one has as a child, what one eats as a child really determines one's enthusiasm or lack of it for, for, for food and for cooking in, in the future. Mm. And the thing was, I was just terribly lucky because this was like in the 50s 
and the farm was pretty much organic because most farms were in those days and it was a mixed farm in other words we had sheep cattle pigs chickens and loads of vegetables growing in my dad's garden so it was sort of um it, it was a bit of a special place not that we thought so at the time of course it was mm. just like what we had but looking back on it it's just given me a love of, of fresh produce really mm. and um, and good quality beef Funny enough, I've just been filming in Northern Ireland with shorthorn cattle, and they were the cattle that we had on our farm in Oxfordshire. And I tasted some of the shorthorn beef there, and I just it took me right back. Really? To uh, Conduit Farm in mm. Oxfordshire. Yes. I often think with things like that, it is the food itself, but it also sounds like you had the kind of childhood where you were sitting down for family meals, which is also a very important thing, I think. G great point. I mean, but, but everybody did in those days. Mm. I mean, um, I, I don't know anybody of my age or slightly younger who didn't have probably a two-course meal at lunch, which we always called dinner, okay. right? Very confusing. And um. <laughs> You know, supper, like simple suppers, was what you had just before you went to bed, which would be a bowl of soup or oh, some really? cheese on toast or something. But um, Oh, but, not like a midnight snack, that's what I was thinking. No, no. it was sort of... A, <laughs> we didn't necessarily always have it, because quite often on the farm, we had a thing called high tea, which was like about 5, 5.30, where you'd have things like chicken salad, I remember particularly, but not with mayonnaise, with Heinz salad cream, Ooh. which... Um, I still have a great affection for. Yeah. There I we always go. thought high tea was afternoon tea. If you called it high tea, it meant obviously you drink tea with milk, but it means a sort of light meal at about five o'clock. Okay. Afternoon tea is sort of tea and sandwiches well, yes. or cakes yeah. mid-afternoon. Thank you for explaining that to me, Rick. <laughs> but that, yeah, I just there are so many different I words know, for things. It is very confusing, isn't it? Talking about children, I was really interested to read that. All of your children have gone into the world of food, but all against your advice. What was your advice to well, them? Well, it was just simply because you know, restaurant work is hard mm. and um, the hours are long and, you know, antisocial hours are long. And I, I sort of devoted a lot of my young life to cooking in restaurants and I didn't really want my sons to do, do the same thing simply because I did miss out on a lot of social life in my mm. 20s and 30s. But basically, you can't tell your kids anything, no. <laughs> you know. They just do what they want to do, thank you very much. Rick, by telling them not to, you basically ensured that it's they would. <laughs> I just remember also about that time, this very young man came to the back door to the kitchen and said he wanted to be a chef. And I said, don't do it. You know, that's my answer. <laughs> you don't do it. Like I was right in the middle of service and looking probably a bit hot and sweaty. I said, just don't even think about it. And I could tell when I was saying this to him, it made him want him to do it more and more. But a huge compliment to you, I think, that they've seen everything that you've done and, and achieved and they want to follow in your footsteps. Well, I suppose so. But also, I think, as you know, while they were young, it was part of their life. Mm. And they're all very friendly with people in the restaurant and hotel yeah. business. So, I mean, they have the shared sort of socialising and shared sort of promise and sort of hopes for the future. Mm. So I, I think if you're born into that, into the industry, it's it, it does have its pluses. You know, it's very sociable. Yeah. Um, and you do make really good friendships in it. So it's sort of, you know, a lot of people looking at it say, oh, I wouldn't want to go into that. But I always say, because of my age, there's nothing wrong with hard work. No. You know? 
and when you look back now, do you think you did make a lot of sacrifices to get to where you are? Well, I mean, I suppose I did, but I sort of think in your sort of 20s and 30s, you need to. Yeah. Because you've got the strength and you've got the energy. And really, all I would say to, sh to chefs is you don't have to do this all, this, all your life. Actually, mm. I gave up cooking every night when I was 50. And that was just even at that now young age to me, um, it, I was getting t too tired and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Mm. But I, I also say what, what, what you learn in working in a kitchen, you're never going to forget and you will never find a job harder, right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting because my wife, Sassy's um, cousin, is a nurse, okay? But one of her daughters is working in the catering. And somebody said to Jane, Sassy's cousin, there's nothing tougher than being a nurse, right? And she said, no, there is. It's being in catering. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> or hospitality, yeah. as we call yeah. it now. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> there's a lot of talk now about people in their 20s desperately searching for work-life balance. But I kind of think the same as you, that it's quite hard to have that in your 20s if you really do want to learn everything that you need to learn and you want to get to where you yeah, want to get to. I, I you think can't so. really be worrying about work-life balance. I think that's it's a mistake to assume that if you get your life right and your work-life balance right, you're going to be the happy, happy as you possibly can. Mm. Because I just think a lot of happiness comes out of doing things like working, right? And it may be, you know, unfashionable to say it, but I just think as soon as you get out of the house and do something, you immediately start thinking positively. Mm. So, you know. Yeah. Yes. I'm bound to think like that. <laughs> I, really I would agree with age. that. <laughs> Let's talk about the second desert island dish. What was the first dish you learned to cook? Well, I have to say it had nothing to do with fish. It was corned beef hash, Ooh. sort of English style. I mean, we we all were brought up on corned beef in tins. I mean, corned beef, fresh corned beef, which just means salt beef and generally brisket, I think, or silverside, is fabulous. But we all had usually Frey Bentos from South America corned beef, which I loved. I mean, it's the same way as a lot of people still like Spam. I don't know if you mm. know what Spam, like pork luncheon meat. But I loved corned beef, and I just made this simple hash. I don't think it was my recipe. I think my mother might have done it. It was just basically fry some onions and um, and just make a simple tomato sauce and mash up the the hash and just cook it out in the tomato sauce. I can't remember whether there was anything else that went into it. I might have put baked beans in there as well at some stage. Oh. But I just, um, you know, it's like a really simple thing to do. <laughs> How and, uh, old do you think you were when well, you were cooking? Well, probably that? again about 10, I would thought, mm. something like that, you know. So I never you... cooked anything before. Yeah. So you were in the kitchen from a young age. Well, I was, but the thing is, um, you know, people say, to, who taught you how to cook? And nobody taught me how to cook. Nobody taught anybody how to cook in those days. You just watched your mother or our farm manager. I was born and brought up on a farm in Oxfordshire uh, when, when I wasn't in Cornwall called Joyce, who used to cook. But I just used to watch them, you know? I think it's sort of... Um, it's quite tricky to sort of ask your parents, can you teach me how to cook? Yeah. I mean, some people obviously do. But, I mean, you sort of, as a child, you pick up these things naturally anyway, mm. I think. Learning to cook almost begins with learning to eat. Like yeah, you have yeah. to appreciate delicious food and then and you get an interest in learning how to make that and it kind of all snowballs. Yeah, no, I think you've hit on something quite important for me there, really, is that I, I do think that my best chef friends all learned how to eat before they learned how to cook. Mm. And I think a lot of the problem with 
the industry is if, if people aren't used to enjoying food, it's really hard for them to do anything that but but cook technically. In other mm. words, cut things up very nicely or make a, a perfect looking dish. Whereas my emphasis is always on um, the taste of things, really, yeah. because that's what I picked up first. Well, that's very interesting. <clears throat> Not naming any names, but have you ever met a very successful chef who just wasn't really interested in eating? I think what happens actually to sort of really successful chefs is they sort of get up the sort of Michelin star sort of route mm. by working for some eminent Michelin star chef. And as a result of that, they gradually learn how to cook. And also what they learn is how about good wine. So I know lots of chefs that have got like two stars and cook really nice food, but also like talking about food now mm. and particularly like talking about wine, like we all do yeah. in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> so you got two E's at A-level, but with the help of a tutor, <coughs> you went to Oxford as a mature student to read English. At that point, I believe you had a mobile disco business yes. that you took around the English countryside to earn money. What did you think you were going to do at that point? Didn't really care. Okay. Did you care about going to Oxford? Uh, yes, I did. I mean, it was just, um, I suppose, sort of suffering, as I've said earlier, from my very, very bright brother. Mm. I never thought I could make it. And actually, I went sort of traveling around the world for a couple of years. And during that time, I, I was on my own. I read a lot of books because I was lonely a lot of the time. And I sort of really got into English literature. And it was really as a result of this sort of hitchhiking as one did in those days, around the world, reading books, I sort of felt I could have a crack at Oxford. And I, I think the reason I got into Oxford was really because at that time, they were looking for slightly older undergraduates. I was about 22, I think, when I went there. Most of them were 18. It's weird to call that mature student, isn't well, it? Well, I know. <laughs> 22 it is, it is very is. depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd had a bit of a sort of experience in life, quite a lot of experience in life, actually, through going around the world. And I think that sort of influenced... Uh, I, I think I got into Oxford just simply on the interview, mm. as well as, you know, you had to do Latin and French mm. exams at the time, I remember. Mm. So after Oxford, you moved to Padstow in Cornwall and you found a nightclub on the quayside in a small 70s fishing village, as it was then. How did you find the running of a nightclub? Um, very difficult. Uh, and But, you know, I was in my early 20s, enormous um, energy and enthusiasm. But myself and my business partner, who's also my best friend, Johnny, who owned the club, we had no idea about dealing with drunk people, really. Um, <laughs> Was that the hardest bit? Yeah, the yeah. The I mean, we just, we just had this idea of a lovely, you know, my mobile disco, finding a home for it, having a lovely time with lovely people. And, of course, most of the time, the lovely people were fishermen pissed and fighting. <laughs> so it was like, I've always said this quite humorously, that a lot of those people that caused us so much trouble in the nightclub became... My suppliers. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Of <laughs> so, course. That's so funny. Um, so it, yeah, it was it was a tough time, but it's a time of sort of growing up, really. Mm. In my case, I guess I was just enjoying myself too much. I went to Oxford, didn't do particularly well, but I did like the course. Did a lot of partying, ran the disco, and um, basically, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to okay. settle down, and I think it's great if you don't settle down because once you have settled down. As, as one of my best friend's tutors said, 
when you leave Oxford, it's a straight run to their grave. Oh, that's <laughs> a very cheery meaning, thought. Meaning, you know, you're never going to have so much fun and carefree fun mm. as you have at university. You know? Yeah, but so. back then there was quite a lot of pressure because I feel like people's careers look quite different in that you had kind of had one career and you might have the same job yeah, indefinitely that's, that's and right, it just yeah. wasn't as common to kind of chop and change. No, and I remember a friend of mine who's gone into catering was at Eton and he said um, he went to his what we call the careers masters in those days, careers master said he wanted to go into what we call then called catering, now we call hospitality. And he said, Sam, nobody from Eton has ever gone into catering. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. <laughs> there you go. Uh, maybe the Eton careers master would still say that. <laughs> You're obviously naturally very entrepreneurial. And I know you spent six months working in a restaurant before you went to university. But other than that, have you always been your own boss? Yeah, I, I have. I guess the older you get, the more you think how unlikely it would be that you would want to work for anybody mm. else. I mean, it is one of the joys of having your own business is you, you answer to nobody else. Maybe in the early days, I could have worked for somebody else and I would have sort of fitted in. But mm. once you've done it, it's, it's just a, a real sense of freedom yeah. in spite of the hard work yeah. that you've got nobody to answer to. It's quite hard to go backwards. It would be, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the third desert island dish. Rick, what is the best dish you've ever eaten? Oh, Lord. I mean, that really is really hard. I guess, I, I mean, I could give you 10, but I just remember once my sister's wedding lunch, and we went to the Connaught, and um, it was enormously expensive at the time, still is, but it was incredibly sort of posh. <laughs> and I remember the starter was a thing called a, a rendezvous de fruits de mer à la crème de basiac. And it was like a volavant filled with scallops, maybe lobster, crab, in, in a sort of creamy, uh, cream and white wine fish sauce flavoured with chiffonade basil. Wow. And I just remember tasting it and thinking, you know, if I could create dishes like this, I'd be happy. Yeah. And um, I remember we had a bottle of Merceau to go with it. And I think it's probably more the sort of like we were all so young and so full of euphoria that it, it stands out as particularly special. Mm. And um, I have to ask my sister Henrietta if she remembers it as, as well as I do. Yeah, really. that would be interesting. Yeah. So were you cooking professionally at the time? Uh, not quite. Okay, no. that is no, interesting. But yeah. you remember having that thought of yeah, this yeah. is so good. Yeah, this is what I'm aspiring to. Yes, I think so. I, I and it was got... fish, Rick. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Still there. Yeah. <laughs> the nightclub ultimately ended up being closed down, and as a result, you opened your first restaurant in that space. Yeah. Not out of a strong desire to open a restaurant, but because you had the space and you needed to do something with it. That's right. I mean, and I. I sort of immediate was basically the nightclub closed down we were going to go bust that's me and johnny so mm. basically we split the building which was three floors he had a bit of money left and he developed the top two floors into flats okay i took over the ground floor and turned it into a restaurant i did all the work of turning a nightclub into a restaurant myself <gasps> i did all the plumbing all the wiring you couldn't go you? you couldn't do anything like that now without health and safety <laughs> certificates <laughs> And all the floors, I laid all the floors. And um, the original restaurant, we just used the old nightclub bar as the, as the kitchen and put like 
cooking equipment where the back bar was. That was the first um, iteration of the seafood restaurant. And um, at that point, I mean, you'd done six months cooking in this restaurant yeah, a few yeah. years previously. That's all I previously. knew, yeah. And then you opened a restaurant. I mean, that's an incredibly brave thing to do. Well, it, at the time, it was a lot easier than you might think, simply because nobody, and this was like the mid-'70s, very few people knew about food, knew about restaurant cooking. So our customers were generally quite as ignorant as I was. <laughs> so you could get away with an awful lot, really. And then um, gradually, <laughs> I learned. They'll be very happy to hear them <laughs> described as that. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I learned just simply by being there and cooking, yeah. you know. Was it all smooth sailing? Did no, you not it? at all. <laughs> I mean, it was like a really hard and of course we had no money this is me and my first wife jill we opened it together mm. um so it was it was really hard and also the we had very few staff but then we weren't very busy i mean many nights during the early summer and the first years we were open we wouldn't get any customers in oh, really? we just stuck at it because we had no choice that mm. was the real reality on it do you think a lot of people romanticize running a restaurant well, I think so. I mean, it's it's easy to romanticise it simply because the, the good times are really good. I mean, mm. you're right, in the early days, we had customers, really discerning customers that liked the fact that I was just cooking very simply cooked fish because I really couldn't do much else, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but they were the sort of people that that's what they wanted. And I mean, now you go to somewhere like Greece and all you want is some fresh fish, mm. you know? And that's I didn't quite get that at the time, but just by chance, my raw material was there on the quayside, and and people liked it, and and I think that's what kept me going was that I just built up a very small list of people that really liked what I was cooking, mm. simply because it was sort of not, you know, it wasn't the posh food that generally people liked at the time, which yeah. was like the 70s and early 80s. Mm. But yeah. people have written whole books about that. It's interesting that you say that because the key to success in anything is to get 100 true fans, which doesn't sound like an awful lot, but that kind of sounds like the mentality that you were doing. You just started very small, made sure you were doing a good job, and you had that small number of people who loved yeah. you. Yeah. I the other thing about it is, is those early customers were people I could talk to. I mean, because, mm. you know, I came from quite a sort of like, you know, upper middle class background and university educated and all that sort of thing. So I, I readily took to the people that appreciated what I was doing, yeah. but also I could talk about other things other than just um, being a cook. And I, I guess, that, I mean, that's what really kept us both going was the sort of relationships with our customers. And in those days, I could afford to get out, sit down and have a few drinks with them. And it was really enjoyable, that side of it. Yeah. Rick, we're going to move on to the most important question of the day. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Well, I have to say it's the salt beef sandwich, hot salt beef sandwich at Selfridges, right? Um, it's just, it's like one of those Jewish salt beef and pickles things. And they use brisket and they're just, it's all sort of freshly cooked and hot. And um, I can't remember what the bread, I think it's just ordinary bre bread, but maybe sourdough. But I just think hot salt beef sandwiches are, and lots of mustard. Yes. Uh, probably German mustard, I think, or French, but not hot English. You know, I'd go, I'd go a long way 
Yes. <laughs> That's, That's a great savage. tip. Thank you, Britt. I'm going to have to go before this goes out. Your whole ethos around food has always been cooking simply with good ingredients, and your new book demonstrates that too. It was the same right from the very beginning, and you managed to change everyone's feelings towards fish. I know you've said that wasn't intentional and it was just a no-brainer because the fish was readily available to you. But looking back now, does that feel like a really big thing that you did back then? Yeah, I suppose it's sort of, it's it's not sort of altruistic at all. I just always used to be quite sort of um, ashamed by the lack of good fish cooking in this country as opposed to in the early days, France. That Mm. was where I went all the time. And I just sort of felt, you know, which I've said so many times, surely we could get some really good fish restaurants. I mean, we used to go to Brittany a lot and just just think, why can't we do that in in the UK? But why wasn't it happening? Do you know what? I think it's just now absolutely certain that, that one's enjoyment of dishes is based on what one had as children right Mm. and i've I've just seen that so often that if you're not used to eating certain foods as a child you find it really hard to bring them into your sort of into your sort of lexicon Mm. i think one of the other problems with fish is if it's not cooked sensitively it can be very bland yeah and people don't like the smell of it in fact in simple suppers i've got this series of essays in the book which is sort of peppered through the book of of things like I've done a thing about salt Mm. but I've also done one called fear of fish where I've tried to analyze what it is about fish that people don't like and I think it's a mixture the smell the blandness and also this lingering feeling that somehow fish and I quote a quote from um, Jane Grigson whose fish book was one of my really really important books when I started about how real men need beef, need meat. Yeah. Mm. Always remember in in India when we were filming there that the Indians quite feared the British because they ate so much beef. (laughs) And they were all like red-faced and sort of like aggressive beef eaters. Um, And uh, it's hard to get out of that. I mean, Mm. of course now that things, you know, you have to say that the sort of vegetarian and vegan and all that sort of health qualities of much less protein-rich food is so important to us all now. Mm. But there's still, I think, a lingering feeling that somehow fish isn't as satisfying, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, but it's, you know, that presents me with a tremendous challenge, which I really like, yeah, you know. you relish. Yeah, I relish. But I always think it's interesting if, if someone says they don't like fish, obviously I understand why fish are all categorised as fish, but they all taste so different. Well, so you can't do. just say you don't like fish but because they do all... say that. And I mean, it's just so like, you just think, if you could hear what you're now saying, you see, seem such a sort of heathen, such a sort of uneducated person. So I don't like fish. So much has changed. And and the UK wasn't celebrated then in, in terms of its food culture. And now we have such a vibrant food scene, which is so exciting. And closer to home in Cornwall, you've got multiple restaurants and Padstow has become this food destination and it's really on the map. At what point did your ambitions grow from having the one restaurant to the empire that we now know today? (laughs) Um, Well, I realised at an early age, I mean, an early part of my cooking career, that 
that if I wanted to get out of cooking and I could see that it's that it has a limited life because of one sort of strength, mm. I'd need to have other people to do the the job. So the only way I could see to doing that was to grow, mm. so I could employ other chefs, and actually, then I needed to employ other sort of like a financial person sure. and and a, then you know i used to do all the wages myself but i thought well, like i can't be doing cooking and other yeah <laughs> so it, you just have it, almost you need to grow to get yourself out of doing the sort of everyday everyday jobs and there are people that i know my age in their 70s who are still running small restaurants and are their heroes they really are because you know, one thing that's been really nice for me is actually giving up the, the daily cooking and traveling, mm. you know, and, and sort of getting ideas from all over the place. And um, is it true that you're away for almost six months of the year? Probably, yeah, totting it all up, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I just love it. I think of nothing better than getting on a plane to somewhere, you know. Mm. And is that where you get a lot of your inspiration? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's not always... Sort of from the best places. It's it's just when you sort of see somebody cooking something that's in, in, completely appropriate to the area, mm. using local materials. It's very inspiring, mm. you know. And I mean, I can invent dishes till the cows come home, but it's not quite the same as a dish that's built on sort of time and you know love and sort of families and all that. And it, it's just something I find really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Well, I mean, I, I'm just very fond of... Sorry. <laughs> very fond of I, fish. I have to admit it. It's probably... <laughs> I probably have Dover's soul, and I feel mm. very embarrassed about saying that it's such an expensive fish, and it looks like, you know, incredibly sort of dilettante taste, but I just find Dover's soul just a fabulous, fabulous fish. Mm. And I just cook it always the same way, just um, pan fry it, you know, in butter. And, um, you know, this it's sort of like, I suppose, it's, it, mundanely, it's like a really good steak, a dover sole. It's sort of, I sort of defy anybody to not actually like dover sole. When mm. people say, I don't like fish, I, I would say, look, sorry, it's very expensive, but just try a dover sole and tell me you don't like fish. Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's it. Okay. Dover sole. In the French way, a la manure, it's called. Yeah, delicious. What? How often do you think you're having that? Oh, I'm not not like sort of like massively. <laughs> not daily. I mean, about once a fortnight, I suppose. Okay. Not yeah. not like every day. You're but... Rick Stein. You can have a dobersol whenever <laughs> you want. When I was reading about your career and how it unfolded, it seemed to be so organic in terms of opening the restaurant and then a book deal came and then the TV show found you. You didn't go looking for these things, but I wondered if they hadn't have found you, would you have got to the point of seeking them out? Probably. I mean, the reason for first the book and then the TV was just simply to promote the restaurant really mm. i mean that it was i could so see it all that came back to that it, it did yeah which makes that, a lot of sense yeah yeah um that you know cornwall now is a really on everybody's map but it wasn't for years and years it was just a bit of an outpost and i mean um therefore during the sort of like busy summer months like three months in the summer we were flat out for the rest of the time not particularly busy at all. So we just but basically the idea was to try and promote people coming to Cornwall uh, uh, and particularly out of season and gradually build up what they call the shoulders, you know, like sort of September, October, March, April, mm. May as well, really. 
So it was. I just started with that reason. But then I, I really liked the writing cookery books, and I won a prize for my first book. And then TV came along, but bit by chance, really. I mean, again, I was doing sort of little, you know, grilling some mackerel on the local TV um, station, BBC Southwest, every now and then after the six o'clock, six thirty news. <laughs> You know, and, out in the garden. But then the first proper TV show, it was with the man who made Keith Floyd Yeah, famous. with David Pritchard. Yeah. And that was just really good luck because he just... He had been working in Bristol and that's where he started doing the show with um, Keith Floyd. And then he came to run the BBC in in Plymouth. Mm. And I got to know him through Keith. And again, it, it, it wasn't so much that I wanted to do telly. I just really liked David. And I really liked his sort of like sort of outlook on life is enthusiasm for plenty of red wine and lots of nice food. <laughs> um, so it just got on personally very well and I ended up filming with, with him because I liked him. Yeah, you know. and did that whole side of things come very naturally? Not particularly. I mean, I remember if it wasn't actually David's idea, it was his then-girlfriend called Maggie, who, um, who a New Zealander, who I met, I had coffee with about six months ago in Sydney. And she reminded me that it was her that oh. had put up with me because she could see something in me that would make good telly. And David wasn't really sure. And I did, I had a bout of, bout of glandular fever at the time. And when I did my first takes, I was still getting over it. And I was terrible. And David went to Maggie and said, this isn't going to work. Oh, no. really not going to work. <laughs> and she just said, trust me, David, it will. And it, it did, yeah. you know. But, I mean, the thing is, you, learn, you have to learn everything. I wasn't particularly good to start with, to be honest. You know, I mean... Um, but why would you be? Well, exa yeah. exactly. In fact, it, the, what really did it for me was to, David said, look, and he was, he was a great teacher, but he sort of, like, he said, look, this. think of the TV camera as your little friend, he said, <laughs> and you just took, you're confiding in your little friend. Oh, uh, that's a good tip. And, okay, um, so not to be uh, scared. Yeah, and sort of, so that's the way I've always done it, really. It's almost like, I just want to tell you about how this works, sort of thing, you know. And it, it immediately, you're not sort of phased by it, because mm. you, you know, you're just your little friend. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you had your dog with you. Well, that came into the first, literally the first day's filming, because, I mean, David, he always had this ability to sort of like, yeah, it was about food, but you had to have some sort of light diversion. I've always said it's a bit like Frasier, you know, the dog in Frasier. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so you have the dog in every now and then just mm. to sort of like change. Yeah. And, and that's what he did with Chalky. And, of course, mm. Chalky got the part by the, the first <laughs> day's filming, I think it was. He, he tried to bite the microphone oh. that was above where we, I was sitting with him. And it sort of made it into one of those television blooper type things. You know. <laughs> Chalky, you're hired. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're going to move on to the sixth desert island right. dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? Um, well, I generally, I'd, you know, again, in, in Simple Suppers, I've written about dinner parties and the death of dinner parties, mm. about the fact that people really don't like the idea of dinner parties anymore. But actually, we all still do have gatherings of people. Yeah in our houses, call them what you like. Yeah, right? people don't like the name. They don't like the yeah. name. But I, I think it's something like some sort of pie, like, I mm. don't know if you're talking British, like a shepherd's pie, a cottage pie, but I really like, um, there's a Greek dish which I 
particularly fond of course it's very light moussaka but it's called pastizio and it's from the sort of a west coast side of greece and it's quite a sort of byzantine in its flavorings because it's got a lot of cloves in it and a bit of nutmeg and a bit of um sort of sweet spices mm. but it's a, a very nice sort of meat and uh, macaroni dish um and i just like doing that because Basically, I did, when you have people around, you're not really... I don't like to show off, right? Okay, okay. I'd just sooner have a, a pie that's really nicely cooked. Yeah. And then nobody has to sort of bother too much about the food and they don't say, oh, this is wonderful, this is wonderful, you know. Yeah, because otherwise easier. you're Rick Stein, the chef, in one of your restaurants exactly. cooking for your exactly. friends. But you don't... That's not the vibe well, that you want. No, it's not And they're not wanted. paying. <laughs> They're not paid, but it's not that. But it's also, it's really hard to do in a domestic mm. situation because, you yeah. know, when you're in a commercial kitchen, everybody has a little bit to play in the whole thing. Yeah. Might be overkill to bring yeah, the yeah. team in yeah, for yeah, your yeah. dinner party. <laughs> Although we do have, I mean, we have dinner parties at the house in um, in Chiswick. You know, I've got a house in London and one of the waiters from um, our restaurant in Barnes, which is just across the, um, the river, the Thames, comes and he has been for years now Gennaro so I do bring Gennaro oh, yeah. over that's a no-brainer and <laughs> um, do you often serve a pudding yes I do I like puddings but I mean it's generally simple British things like uh, I particularly like bread and butter pudding but if it's quite a rich dish I'll do just something like uh, a lemon posset um, because it's like it, 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 I mean lemon posset is just lemon juice sugar and and cream you know end of so I good. love that so I tend to do maybe do a little biscuit like a long new shout biscuit just to sort of show that I can yeah <laughs> otherwise it's nothing more yeah. so the new book simple suppers when you described it you said you like the idea of it being supper because it suggests an ordinary meal yeah a meal when one isn't trying too hard maybe something that you're going to cook in your jeans and polo shirt yeah with a glass of wine on the side which I think we can agree that's the best kind of cooking isn't it yeah yeah it is I mean uh, it's you know, I just think that cooking for friends shouldn't be hard, mm. you know. It's not really about that. I'm not really good, actually, at, um, at cooking and talking to people. But one of the things that always happens, particularly if you're not particularly well organised when people come <laughs> round, is you are cooking when they're there. So mm. you just got to keep it simple. Yeah. Are you not very organised? No. Are you not? <laughs> no. Terribly, terribly <laughs> disorganised. I mean... I say that, but then my wife says, no, you're much more organised than you'd, you'd let on, really. You know? okay. I mean, I do things like a sort of time list. Oh, you'd, okay. You know, That's if it's organized. serious, if it's serious. Yeah. And I've sort of learnt over the years to realise that you really need to stick yourself to some times because in my mind, there's always plenty of time and there never is. Yes, yeah. that's true. That's a very good motto for life, I think. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, so I'd right. love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Well, I mean, it's it's probably still um, one of Elizabeth David's uh, books. And I, I keep doing this, and it's, I should find something else, something more modern, but I think it was just the sort of, um, the fact that she wrote most of them in the sort of, 50s and 60s after the deprivations of the second world war mm. deprivations in terms of not being able to get much i mean i think she spent part of the second world war in italy so she wrote i mean italian food is possibly my favorite because mm. 
the illustrations in the first book were from an artist that I came across when I was filming in Palermo from a Sicilian artist. Oh, wow. And they're illustrations. And I love old cookery books that are illustrated, not have photos. Mm. And she just, she wrote, you know, it, it, like after the Second World War, she went to Italy and all that colour and she just wrote about it. And you read it and you just, you still want to go off to Italy and find the dishes that mm. she found then. So did I, you I ever meet her? I didn't. Well, in fact, I did because she, she was actually friends of my parents. <gasps> but I was too young to appreciate that the, the, the house in Cornwall, right? There were always sort of artists and musicians coming to stay. So my parents loved, you know, all that. And she came, I think, more than once because <gasps> my brother remembered her. I didn't sort of was in my teen teenage years and a bit of a strop. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, the teenage strop ruins yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, they say you should never meet your heroes, so maybe that happened for a reason. Well, maybe, but I mean, that's certainly, I mean, some of my chef friends like Simon Hopkinson's did meet her. And she, I remember the first book I ever published, uh, I ever wrote called English Seafood Cookery. My publisher, a lady called Elio Gordon said, she could be extremely, talking about Elizabeth David, yeah. she could be extremely disagreeable. You know, she threw a cookery book at me once. Oh, my goodness, no, Elizabeth, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, Hugh Fernley Whittingsall said that she came into the River Cafe when he was in the pastry section yeah. and they had an Elizabeth David chocolate tart on, yeah, the, yeah. on the menu and he'd changed the recipe without telling anyone yeah. and he had to serve her her oh chocolate tart, which wasn't her chocolate tart, and it it actually seemed to go down quite well. But yeah, that well, sounded you, very stressful. You never knew, but she, I, you know, she was quite a sort of passionate woman, I think. She wrote really well, mm. you know, and it's quite rare to get cookery books that are sort of really well written as well as have great recipes. Yeah. And that stand the test of time. Yeah. Well, on to the final seventh desert island dish. Right. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert uh, island? Well, I'd have some fresh longestines, freshly cooked. I like so like boiled in well-salted water mm. and with mayonnaise, my own mayonnaise, really, because I just like it. Yeah. For a main course, I mean, I, I just always go for the same thing, which would be turbot and hollandaise sauce. I know you've got mayonnaise and hollandaise. Nothing wrong with uh, that. With probably um, um, just some new potatoes and some spinach. And then for a pud, well, it would be something like lemon posset, or, you know, something really simple. But the point of it really would be the, the turbot and a bottle of white burgundy, maybe Pellini Montrachet or, or Merceau. In fact, I actually cooked this, that, that entire dish, and I've only just thought about this, up at a place called the Five Arms in Balmoral the other day, other night. What, you cooked this Balmoral, whole... near Balmoral. You cooked uh, this whole menu? That one, the longest beans, okay. turbot ah. and, and that. And um, the Queen was there, Camilla. <gasps> And uh, it was a bit of a, that I was told that she really, you know, like a lot of people in her position get fed up with food and being at banquets and, you know, not actually wanting to eat anything. So I just chose it to be as simple as possible, but also the sort of food I really like. Mm. She ate everything, you know? Of course she did. <laughs> so sort of like... I was born know. in the wrong role. I would have been excellent <laughs> at attending many banquets. I would never get bored. Lucky, well, lucky Camilla. Yeah, I think... Again, I feel lucky there because, you know, I just keep things really simple and I don't feel the need to sort of show off in doing food like that because basically I know that people like her would prefer things like 
we like in this country and we like and so do the Greeks, so do the Italians. You mm. know, they like they like things that are local and good quality and yeah. cooked really simply. That's true. It's true, Rick. That's all so, we want. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to cast well, you off to the <laughs> island. Thank you so much, Rick Stein. Yeah. Those are your desert island dishes. Yeah, much more fun than doing desert island dishes. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter, of course, and find a whole host of delicious recipes at desertislanddishes.co. A huge thank you to my producer, Georgie, who helps me so much to keep this all running smoothly and has to listen to hours of my voice in her ears. Thank you, Georgie, for all that you do. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.